Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Pia Kinholt, who is Head of Host State Relations at the European Spallation Source. Uh, that's a major project in London, southern Sweden, to build the world's brightest neutron source. So Ms. Kinholt has a background in entrepreneurship and politics, and she was previously first governor of the Skåne region in Sweden. She now coordinates relationships between several national governments and government organisations, which are working together to create this new research facility. So, Pia, welcome to the podcast. Very glad you can join me. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Talk to me about spallation. What is it, apart from being a, a wonderful word? I mean, I know the absolute basics. It's about firing neutrons at stuff, right? But, but why do that? What does it help us do that we can't do already? Oh, it's both easy and hard, actually, to, to answer that because we, we cover very many science areas. I mean, it's it's obviously material science. What we do is using the neutrons to look at atoms and also molecules. And that means that, that it's very much material science. But that is interesting for a big part of, of the scientific area, like life science, like in energy, uh, technicians, electronics, uh, looking at engineering geoscience, also actually the, the cultural side where you can look at old things and don't destroy them uh, to see how old are they, where are they coming from, how do we solve things in the earlier days. And we also need this to create new materials or to use materials more efficient. Because to do all those things, you need to really know the different materials very, very well down to the atomic level. And then you need the neutrons. And they are quite intelligent. They are very fast, so they can give you very good pictures, very good analytic pictures of, of the material. And they are also very nice. They don't destroy the experimental things that you are looking at. That's very good in this kind of science. But then also you need the complementarity with other techniques, of course, because most often you need different kind of pictures to understand and get the answer of what you're looking for. So we can never be the only way of doing things or solving problems, but we are one important part. All right. And what about the facility that you're building specifically? What's new about that? The, the new thing is that this will be the brightest and most brilliant neutron source in the world. Uh, we will be much, much better and much, much stronger and have a much higher capacity than any of the facilities that we see today. So is this a first for Europe? Well, I mean, neutrons and using neutrons for material science is quite a long European tradition. It started already in the 1930s, and I think the position has been very strong using this kind of technique, where Europe had a very strong position. But uh, during the 80s, 90s, both the US and Japan actually went forward and modernized and created a new generation of this spallation source and Europe was lagging behind. But the discussion has been very strong, especially then, of course, in the science community. And we need to be sort of part of the of the future. And this is trying now for some of the European countries to go together and create the new kind of technique using neutrons as we need for, for also uh, being the front side of science uh, in different areas. Good stuff. So if I understand it, this facility is not up and running yet. No, you're right. Right. So what stage are you up to? 
we are around 70% of the project, the construction, uh, and we have a lot, of course, installations left to do. Um, it takes a long time to do this. I mean, it's a 10-year construction project uh, and even maybe more than that. Unfortunately, we also have the pandemic now, so we, we don't really know about the deadlines. But it takes a long time. It's a very complicated construction and installation. We are building things that never been built before. We are solving technological uh, solutions that never been done before, and we are trying to do it in real life. <laughs> so it's a, it's a complicated construction. Right, sure. I can believe that it's complicated. And I think this is not a totally unfamiliar concept to a lot of people because we had the Large Hadron Collider being built, what, 10, 20 years ago. And that also took forever and was quite closely followed by the media. So we, we know. But I have to admit, I have a certain failure of imagination when it comes to these things. I, I, like, I accept that they take a fantastically long time, but I don't really understand why. Like, what on earth takes so long? Because you are also, in a way, you are designing while you're building. And I think if you've ever been into any kind of construction, you know that the normal thing is that you have a ready design and then you build. In this case, we are doing designing mean while we are building. And sometimes you, you have to adjust, you have to change, you have to stop and sort of think over, okay, that we thought would work on when we had it on the table will not work when we are doing it in real life. So that's why this is very, very complicated and takes a long, long time. Uh, and therefore also we need all the competence, the best people there is in the whole world actually gathered in this project. That's interesting. huh? So that suggests that you have to have hands-on input while you're building, not just from the engineers and the architects and the designers, but also from the scientists themselves, the people who's whose future experiments you're looking to uh, facilitate. Absolutely. They are a very important part of, of the project sort of team that you have all these categories represented. And it's also, of course, complicated because sometimes these kind of different competences are not really used to work together in this kind of projects. So that takes time. But I mean, you, you can see it almost in all different kind of research infrastructure of this size that it, it, it takes time. And it is complicated. But we are also, we are putting the edge. We are really stretching what we can do and what we know uh, all the time. Yeah, so even the process of building it might be generating new knowledge. Never mind when it's finished and people can use it. Absolutely. I, I think this is a knowledge building on all levels, actually. And for us, we have also built and organized the organization because normally when you will this kind of facility, you are already part of some kind of institute or university. But we are also a single out or own organization building everything from scratch. So that is also, of course, complicated, but a learning process uh, and very interesting, I must say. Yeah, you might say interesting. I would say terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually really where I want to take the conversation because, I mean, as intriguing as the science of spillation is, no doubt, as you know, this is a podcast about the interface between science and policy. And usually that means talking to the people who take scientific knowledge and feed it into policy or, or the people who receive it on the policy side. Um, but in this project, you're working at the same interface and you have the same interest in bringing the two worlds of science and policy together, but for a slightly different reason, namely that you want to eventually create new scientific knowledge. So maybe I can ask you to say a little bit about your role and how you try to interface between those two worlds, science and policy. 
Well, hopefully, and, and that's the main uh, sort of goal with, with this function, because we have two host countries, both uh, Sweden and Denmark, as the facilities built in actually both Lund and Copenhagen. Uh, so therefore, it's also a complicated host situation. Uh, also, the two countries are quite new to hosting this kind of big infrastructure, research infrastructures. So in a way, we, we try to create a function that can help this and also explain and translate between the two communities. I mean, the politics, the decision makers, the funders, and also then the science community and the construction, sort of the construction site, the, the way of how you build these kind of big projects. So that's the main main goal of this function, to try and, and make it easier and, and make them also understand each other. Yep, which is a perennial theme on this podcast. Okay, so you mentioned that there are two host countries. That's an extra uh, element of complication. Well, altogether, there, we have 13 member countries with then Denmark and Sweden as hosts. And then, of course, the big countries are involved in this, like Germany, France, Italy, Spain, UK. And then we have some smaller countries, Switzerland, Norway, that are not EU members, but are part of this project, because this is not an EU project. I should maybe underline that this is a collaboration between these 13 countries, uh, even if it's a European effort you could say. And is the European Union itself a partner or, or just a, a bystander? No, it's a bystander so far. We have, of course, uh, been able to um, get some grants from the Horizon program for certain parts of the project, but they are a bystander when it comes to the actual project. Okay. A few of the countries, the member countries, have actually used structural funds for their part of the project. So, um, so EU has been involved, but sort of as an indirect. Mm-hmm. And would it be fair to describe anyone as like the owner of the project or the lead? No, not really. I think this is really a collaboration between 13 countries, a very joint collaboration and a joint effort. And we all need each other. All the members need each other to actually make this happen. And not one single country could have done this on their own. But then, of course, the host countries as hosting the facility physically uh, has another kind of responsibility, of course, in a way. But I think as an effort and as an investment, I think this is very much a joint collaboration. Right. So about those hosts, Sweden and Denmark. Okay. There are a few countries in Europe which have quite a lot of experience in building and running these infrastructure-heavy, high-impact science facilities. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Sweden and Denmark aren't really the countries that spring to mind when you think about that. I'm sure you have plenty of expertise, but apart from anything else, you're quite small countries. Yeah. So why did Sweden and Denmark decide to take on this challenge? And also, how did you persuade your colleagues that you were the right country for the job? Well, it's it's a long story in a way. It took years. It could, took decades, actually. Because as I said earlier, the discussion among sort of getting to the new generation of spallation source and neutron sources uh, had been going on in Europe because they felt that it was lagging behind. Uh, at the same time, uh, it was very hard because there were also other big research infrastructures projects ongoing, both in France, in the UK, in Germany, etc. So there was a lot of things on the table at the time. So there were actually some scientists in Sweden, Denmark and Norway that got together and thought about this and discussed. And you could also say it was against the background where you were closing down the very old and very small 
neutron facilities that we had had in the Nordic countries. Very, very small, but also very old. So they sat down and had a long discussion about why don't we do it up in the Scandinavian countries? Why not? We have competence, we have scientists, and we can do this. And that was the start of a discussion that then led to the ESS design that was actually made by a European consortium of scientists. And meanwhile, they were lobbying on their governments, of course, to try and see that this was a good idea. And that led to then the governmental discussions between some of the countries. And uh, after many discussions, Sweden and Denmark felt that they could take a decision because they had the big countries behind them on their project. But I mean, we are talking about maybe 20 years of discussion. Hmm. And that's before the clock starts for the 10 years you mentioned to build the thing. Exactly. So in 2009, Sweden and Denmark felt that they could take a decision on actually, let's start the ESS project. Yeah. And that also puts into a new light what you said earlier about having to redesign the facility as you go along. Yeah. I guess it's not just that you figure out things you didn't know, but also you realize that designs you had 20 years ago are out of date by now. You have to redesign and redesign and redesign. So there have been many redesigns. Yeah. I bet. So what exactly are the practical challenges that Sweden and Denmark have faced? What's it been like learning this stuff from scratch? It's uh, it's both good and bad. In a way, it's, it's good that you are actually new on the job. Uh, you have an open mind. Uh, you can uh, you listen in to the other countries, and at the same time, of course, you don't have any kind of of uh, routines or procedures or processes uh, that are adapted to actually getting into this kind of world. So it's been in a way both uh, going backwards and and forward in a way, uh, and of course, sometimes you you can feel that the um, the knowledge of understanding this kind of projects and the size, the international national aspect also the handling of that suddenly as we have today an organization with represented by i think 56 or 57 different citizenships um to just handle that kind of organization within your country with different you know labor laws etc it is sometimes complicated and sometimes i think both sweden and denmark has been a bit surprised over the kind of questions that arise when you when you do this so it's 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 been both difficult but also of course they are aware of what they got into in a way hmm and how about uh, cultural or like structural differences between the different partners i mean as an ignorant brit from the outside I kind of assume, well, Sweden and Denmark, they're pretty similar countries. But I wonder how it feels from the inside when you've got two countries hosting a thing simultaneously. Now, the funny thing is that we, we look very much alike. And I think some, some people even think that we sound alike. But we are very, very different when it comes to the working culture. Uh, very different, actually. Um, Finland, Norway and Sweden are more alike. And, and Denmark is actually the one that has a very different approach. At the same time, of course, we have a very long history. We are used to working together. So it doesn't take long to sort of get to know this and understand this. But then sometimes, of course, in in different areas, it can be a a very much faster decision-making in in Denmark than in Sweden. But in other hands, Sweden can be much more flexible and much more open for new solutions than in Denmark. So it's, it's depending on the different issues where you sort of think that it's going more easy than another's and, and where also you, you they misunderstand each other in, in some issues. Uh, and then 
then, of course, towards the other countries. I mean, we have different cultures in all our member countries. So it's uh, it's a very complex and dynamic organization and way of, of also handling the different members. Yeah. But that is, um, we need to do it because otherwise this would never happen. We would never be able in Europe to actually produce this kind of, of research facilities. It would be impossible. Yeah, I can see that. And it's part of the fun anyway. I mean, I think it's one reason why people who work on European projects of all kinds get up in the morning to enjoy that cultural, I was going to say chaos, but no, diversity. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the fun thing with Europe. Some scientists in history says that that is actually also the answer of why we have been successful. Because we've had a cultural competition very close to each other and you can move between these very fast. And that is one of the answers of why Europe has been successful. Then we will see for the future if we can keep that position. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> or whether as we integrate more as a continent and lose that edge of competition, we also lose the advantage. Yeah, that's interesting. Speaking of uh, fun reasons to get up in the morning, let's talk a bit about interacting with government. So two things spring to mind. One is that this is a, a long-term project and governments change over time and political priorities can shift quite dramatically sometimes. So how do you maintain political interest and, and the will you need to see the project through to its conclusion if that is 20 or 30 years in the future? And then the second question kind of goes in the other direction. At any one moment, you have to manage, I think you said, 13 governments and no doubt many more departments and agencies and so on. I guess you have some experience in herding that particular assortment of cats. Uh, but it, of course, it is a challenge, of course. I mean, you, you have to admit that and be honest about that uh, to also keep them all on, on about the same level, level of information, level of knowledge, level of understanding. And that is then going back to what we just said, that that's different between the different countries to be able to understand. Some of them have long experience in this kind of research infrastructures. They understand what we are saying quite quickly. And some you need to, under, to explain and, and get into deeper information and another depth. But uh, I think at the same time, we are not unique in this. I mean, we have other things in Europe that we need to share and that where we share internationally, even, even with other parts of the world. And I think also that this is the solution for the future. No one will make the solutions on their own. So we need also to find ways of collaborating, keeping everybody happy, working with information, communication. That is, of course, vital for us, how we do that and that we do that all the time, that we are very open and transparent in what we are doing, that we try also to adapt the way we explain things to different needs and that is a challenge. Let's be open with that. Uh, we Probably we don't succeed every week. Um, and then we need to get back to the discussion and see what happened. Why Why did you misunderstand? Why do we think that you misunderstood? And um, I always have this um, bearing with me that you can never blame the receiver. It's always the sender that has the responsibility. So it's just to get up and do it again in case you, you feel that you didn't reach your goal with, with your message. Hmm. But it's a, it's a big thing. And also to understand the different policies. In a way, European countries are not that different. You have almost the same sort of, what do you say, procedures when it comes to budgets, when it comes to governmental decisions. But then there can be differences on a level that you need to be aware of. So you can really understand why you sometimes are in a bad timing or a good timing. Yeah. 
I see, like every country being at a different point in its electoral cycle, yeah. Exactly. So I'm curious then, how much day-to-day interaction with policymakers and governments do you do, do you need to do? I guess it's not like they signed a cheque 10 years ago and you let them know when it's finished, right? No. Right, I guess not that from what you just said. But then what's it like? Uh, Almost all the time, not every day. But we have, of course, delegates from all the member countries in our council. And they meet about four times a year. Uh, for then the council meetings and and that is of course the most important meetings for the joint update for everything and then as we are funded through this in-kind system uh, that sort of you, you we don't need, or we don't get money we get things and and services uh, that actually to build the facility from the different member countries and that is of course a very going on dialogue all the time from the sub projects from from the in-kind team and from our different partners but that is, of course, also on different levels. Uh, that's not always the governmental level. That can be on institute level and university level. We have very many layers of dialogue with our member countries uh, all the time, actually. Okay, now I'm even more intimidated. The idea of running this kind of project on an in-kind basis. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, uh, France, you owe us a million euros. <laughs> but it's another thing to say, please, can we have, I don't know, 10 diggers, a helicopter and a coffee machine. Yeah, we have, I mean, it's in kind, it's not new for the scientific world, but we have scaled it up on a level that I think is the biggest one uh, ever. Uh, Maybe now we will be outclassed by by ITER in the next phase, but uh, we have been so far uh, scaled it up on a level that is really big and and quite complicated, uh, especially as it's the is the high tech and the high competence that is in-kind deliveries. Uh, the low tech, we actually buy. Right, okay. As a normal procurement. Well, that's good to hear. You don't actually have to beg for coffee machines. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Well, so excuse me for asking so directly, um, but have there been any moments when the project has been at risk because of policy buy-in or lack of it? Have there been moments when you thought, oh, crikey, if we don't persuade this country, then the game's up? Before the decision, we had several risks like that when really people thought this will never happen in Europe. Uh, I would say during the project, not not that kind of risk, no. Of course, I mean, the the risks are there, but then we are talking about more minor risk within a project. But as a risk of the whole project, I I don't think, because this is so important for for the science in Europe, for, for the European position to be part in, in, in competition. And also this kind of technique is more and more important for all areas of science because you, you, need, you have more and more data that you need to take care of and you need also to get data and then you need to analyze the data. And this is getting more and more important for almost all areas of, of science. And that is what we can do. That is a competence that we have. So I, I think a risk of the whole thing, I, I can't see. It's, it's much, much too much that is important for, for the European Europe future. Yeah, but keeping it high on the agenda that way. I mean, we've talked a bit about the scientific motivation, but also the political motivation is important, which you've also mentioned, the need to keep Europe competitive in this area. Is that an argument you find yourself deploying frequently? I guess I'm interested in what kinds of arguments are persuasive uh, when you want to keep this on the agenda for policymakers. Yeah, sometimes, uh, not in all areas and not in all all moments, but uh, it is one important. Sometimes also to remind the member countries 
when other things you can imagine especially under the last year when the pandemic has been of course the highest and most prioritized question on all governments agendas and that's quite good we've been part of the the science and the research on on covid and uh, already although we are not open we have a laboratory that open and could actually take part in in this on an international level uh, as one partner and uh, that is one way for us to show that the governments why this is important. Even in this moment of the pandemic, although we have not even opened, we can be of help and we can be of service. I wonder whether that was a tactical decision that you took. You know, let's get something up and running now. So that Not really. Can... It was in our plan, ah. but it, it sort of was a very, what do you say, good timing is a bad word when it comes to a pandemic, but it sort of, it timed very well. So we could be of help. I see. In that case, also, what advice can you give to policymakers? Like, what lessons should they learn from your project? Depends on also how you define that. I mean, what do you really mean by that? Because, of course, the the lessons learned by collaborating and constructing such a big project is, of course, important, I think, for all the governments and for whole of Europe, also for the EU, actually. To, to look at and have some lessons learned because just to be able and collaborate is so important and I think that is more and more important for, for Europe in the future to to keep competitive in different areas uh, and of course why not learn then from this kind of big projects uh, so I think that part is very important then if there are other lessons to be learned or bring forward is maybe that science is of course an icebreaker very often Science is is very seldom so political. So I think not only that science is very important for the knowledge in this society and for for bringing forward questions in society and and be able to solve problems, but it's also an icebreaker in being quite a neutral platform. And and that is, I think, very important to take care of. I mean, like the CERN project after the war, that was, of course, a breakthrough for Europe. Europe could take a position, Europe could take lead on something, even if that's much bigger and much more international uh, project. And it's a research project. We are a user facility, but we are a user facility open for scientists from all over Europe, but also actually from all over the world. In that way, we will be an interesting platform, I think, for policymakers. And I'm quite surprised that not our leaders in governments have made more of that, this sort of platform based on science, but also of international standard. Right. So so there's two things there, I think. One is the idea of science as uh, a neutral subject, something you can talk about when you want to break the ice without getting dragged into difficult political issues. And the second one is, is more like science capital, where the clout, the expertise, and the investment that you have in science becomes a useful tool in diplomacy in itself, right? Like, like Europe saying, you've got to listen to me because have you seen the size of my particle accelerator? I mean, people are today, I think, talking a little bit about science capital uh, and and what that can do. And I think the, the importance is then to, of course, see that it's still brought forward and, and working on the, its own conditions. That's, of course, vital and, and even more vital if you're going to use it in this way. But at the same time, it opens up platforms that I think especially policymakers need today uh, because we have... We have a development within politics that I think is maybe not so long-term sustainable and it's everything is so short-term and everything is so 
I don't know, you're almost on, on the level of likes uh, when it comes to policy making. And that is not sustainable for the future. But their science can be the, the power to sort of draw it back to where it should be uh, in a way, could be, could be used as that kind of platform. Mm, it shows, I suppose, some bravery from a bunch of elected governments whenever they commission something that they know full well will never come to fruition during their lifetimes before the next election. Exactly, whatever. exactly. And and that is, especially my view is that that is what politics is for. But we see very little of it and, and it, it, you need to be very, be able and risk your, your position at the time for something that you will not even live to see. Um, right. You know, people say in all kinds of contexts that science is a new religion, blah, blah. I never quite buy it. But then what you just said puts me in mind of these medieval cathedrals where, where the person who designed it or the person who commissioned him pay for it yeah. knew full well it would take 100 years to build and they would never see it completed. But they did it anyway. This is the modern times cathedral. Yeah. We sometimes actually say that in the discussion around this kind of, of big infrastructure that we are... We are, we are the modern cathedrals. There are similarities, even if I think this is based on much more than scientific um, facts and not the religious beliefs. Yes. We are not believing. We are trying to find facts. Yeah, absolutely. But then whatever the basis is, you end up with something that you can aspire to complete and invest yourself in, even though you'll never see it through. Yep. <laughs> Well, okay, sorry to bring us crashing down to practicalities, but uh, what's the next stage of the project? You say you're 70% of the way through, so are there any milestones coming up? Yeah, we have some milestones. We are looking for the what we call first science. Uh, we are sort of starting the beam all the way, getting some nutrients, and then also have maybe one or two instruments that where we can at least try out some experiments. They will not be or maybe the, the best quality, but when we can try out. And we hope to be there around 2023-24. We know more this autumn about the, the schedule, but I think that is our next big step, our next big milestone to actually get some research done. Uh, and then from that, we are still installing the first 15 instruments uh, that is in this phase. So then you can start doing some spallation? We can start producing neutrons. Yeah, we're sending the protons down the, the linac. But why we are doing that is to then be able to hit the target and then actually to use the instruments. And I mean, the, the important thing here is not really the technique of accelerator and target. The important thing here is helping scientists to create science and make research and use the instruments. That's our main goal and main purpose. Okay. I just realized something which makes me feel rather stupid. You know, three quarters of the way through this conversation, I feel like I've only now understood that the important research is not done by firing these protons and releasing neutrons. The neutrons are a tool which you then use in other exactly. instruments. Exactly. Yeah, which is why you said it was tricky to give examples of what the new facility will let us do that we couldn't do before, because in a way it's only a platform for all kinds of experiments. It's not the experiment itself. So we, we have an iron source. You have this long, long tunnel with the accelerator where you send protons and then you, you hit them. And that's the spallation. You hit them into the target that is tungsten. And from tungsten, we dissolve the nutrients and then we send them into the instruments. Uh, and the, um, the, the design with this Linux accelerator and the target is made 
so smart that the, in a way, depending of course of the size of the instruments, we, we can have up to 40 instruments on the, on the site with the same target and accelerator. It all depends, of course, of the size of the instruments. If, if they are very, very big, there will be less, but still. Uh, so it's quite a smart design. And that has been, um, you could say, the basic design has been part of the ESS project from the beginning. But then, of course, you have refined the details. I see. And you can run all the instruments that are plugged in at the same time. And you run this kind of facility, you, you run 724, and maybe then we are planning, and we'll see if that will hold, but we are planning to be open around 180 days a year. Because then you need to totally, you know, lock down the whole site to make upgrades and maintenance, etc. But we are not alone about that kind of running. That's very similar to all the other facilities. Okay, so you have all this experience now of marshalling a large coalition of governments and keeping everyone on board and, and building a big science facility with all the complexities that involves. So if someone came to you tomorrow and said, hi, we're planning our own big science facility of any kind, I don't know, what tips could you give them about how to make it work in practical terms? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of technological, uh, I think, ideas we could give them. And I think we already have done, actually. We have supported some other construction sites in, in the world and other, other facilities. There is a very open community between the facilities or even between the different techniques where you share and, and exchange experiences and etc. and technology. But maybe on the on the governance side i would maybe depends on if they're going to do it as a collaboration between countries um, maybe they should sort out the administrative procedures better before they actually set it running uh, and really see that they have adapted some kind of procedures and maybe even legislation uh, to be able and host this uh, an international collaboration like this and really also think about how you set up the governance when it comes to that. So you can handle staff and international staff and secondments and whatever, and you are open for that. And maybe think it through a bit before you start. <laughs> okay, that's a good <laughs> So you tip. don't have to solve why while going, while running. Well, that's excellent advice for any endeavor. So I really want to thank you for giving us this intriguing tour of What's a unique kind of science project, really, and a whole different dimension of the interface between science and policy? Before we finish, though, we talked a little bit about what makes us get up in the morning. And I wanted to ask for you personally, I mean, you clearly have a lot of passion for ESS and what you're building. Why is that? Is it the international flavor we mentioned earlier? Or Yes, it is. And, and that's really, I mean, this is really what is the best of ESS being working there, being part of the staff, is this uh, international crowd, the dynamics, the differences, the input you have from all over the world. It's, it's amazing. And it's really a dream, dream, dream place to work at. All right. Well, Pierre Kinholt, thank you very much indeed. And good luck with the rest of the construction. Fingers crossed for releasing some neutrons sometime soon. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was really nice being here and talking to you. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learned societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. 
Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 program for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.